Praise God. Thank you, Nate. As you're turning to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, most of you are probably familiar with the story of Cinderella. And recently I was reading uh, the story, and in the version that I read, a um, couple of things caught my attention. In the midst of going through her hard times, how Cinderella was willingly help, helping her stepsisters even though they were mean to her. And finally, in the end, after she marries the prince, she could have easily been mean back to her sisters for all they did, but instead she arranged for their marriage to the lords in the king's court. Now, don't do fact checks or see if the earliest manuscripts of Cinderella had these things, but um, this is the version that I read. But I'm not sure if I was in her place, I would have responded the same way. It almost feels like the justice was not served, right? The desire for justice in us wants or prefers an ending something like this. Cinderella lives happily ever after, while her stepsisters live miserably ever after in a dark dungeon cell of the palace, eating stale bread and drinking rotten soup. But that's not what happened. So this also reminded me of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis and how his brothers were so cruel to him and treated him so unfairly by selling him to slave traders. And in spite of all his brothers did, through the Lord's kindness and his mercy, he was with Joseph. And after many years, he was elevated to the position of authority in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And now he gets the opportunity to see his brothers again because of the famine in the land of Canaan. And so they come to get food from Egypt. And now with all his position and authority, he could have easily taken revenge um, against his brothers, but he instead chooses to do the exact opposite. He's showing kindness to them. He's showing mercy. And in fact, he brings his whole family, his father Jacob, from the land of Canaan to the land of Goshen in Egypt and settles them, and, and, and they live happily in Egypt until his death. So the million-dollar question for us this morning is, like, how do we respond like Cinderella? Or how do we respond like Joseph to his brothers, right? But then there's also these sub-questions beneath that, what about justice? And where do we get the strength to love like this, or love like them? You know, we are living in a culture, it seems like everybody is so edgy, right? Like all it needs is a small inconvenience or a, a slight to our ego, and we are up in arms to bring everybody down. But we will see in our passage here today in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants His disciples and His followers to be, to, uh, be different. And He's teaching His disciples to love their enemies, and in doing so, he wants them to reflect the nature and character of God to those around them. And let's read our passage and we'll look to the Lord in prayer. Matthew 5, 43 to 48, it says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And as your word says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And so we pray this morning that would you speak to us through your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would invite, um, you would open our hearts and ignite our hearts through your love this morning. And help us to see God and Jesus clearly and help us to be transformed by seeing them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just to set the stage for our passage today, let's briefly look at the sermon, the context of the Sermon on the Mount. If we remember from the book of Mark, there were two things that happened at the early stages of Jesus' ministry. First, He was, um, you know, the Son of Man coming and proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom. He was preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is near, it is at hand. And the second thing He was doing was He was calling people to follow Him. He would invite the disciples, follow me, and He was asking people to follow Him. And so, you know, the people were probably wondering, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or what does it mean that the kingdom of God is here, and what does it look like to live in God's kingdom? And uh, we don't have the, you know, time to highlight all the details of uh, the significance of the Sermon on the Mount, but, you know, in this particular instance, the crowds were gathering because Jesus was performing miracles, and there were people everywhere coming from the different parts of Judea and Galilee to hear from Him. And so He is climbing on a mountain in this particular instance, and all the disciples come to Him. And so He begins to teach them, and the crowd is also listening to Him as well. And you can see a parallel between the Sermon on the Mount and Mount Sinai where Moses giving God's law to God's people and what does it mean to live as God's people? And you can see that parallelism here with Jesus teaching His disciples and His followers what does it mean to live in God's kingdom. Uh, this uh, quote uh, from commentator Michael Green helps explain the substance of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon shows what human life is like after repentance and commitment to the king. In one word, life is very different. Here we meet a distinctive lifestyle with radically different values and ambitions. Everything is at variance with life outside the kingdom. So in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 21 to 48, Jesus is addressing six topics from the Old Testament law, things like murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and love. And so we're going to zoom in on the love section of the Sermon on the Mount, 5, verse 43 to 48. So in the passage that we just read, Jesus is addressing three things. Who should we love? And why should we love? And what is the goal of our love? And so we'll look at uh, these one by one. So the first thing, who should we love? So let me ask you a question. Who comes to your mind when I say, think about someone you absolutely hate? super annoying and difficult to deal with. Just think about it for a moment. 
And now, as your blood pressure is rising, <laughs> let's hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? There's a, there's a lot of things going on here. So let's look at uh, one by one. So in all the six th topics that Jesus was addressing from the Old Testament law in this section, from verse 21 to 48, Jesus always starts by saying, you have heard, but I say to you. So what's going on here? So Jesus is addressing some misconception and misinterpretation of the Old Testament law by the religious leaders during that time. And that's why he says, you have heard. Now, if you remember, when Jesus quotes the scripture to Satan in the wilderness, what did he say? He said, it is written. But here he says, you have heard. And the reason is because on top of the Old Testament uh, law, the religious leaders had added a bunch of oral traditions, which would la then later be called as Mishnah, codified in, in Mishnah, which then also had commentaries explaining how to interpret those, which was called the Talmuds. So you have all these other things on top of the Old Testament law that the people during that time have heard. And so Jesus is addressing those misconceptions. And the, the topic that Jesus is quoting here, the Old Testament passage, is Leviticus 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor. But there is no reference to hate your enemy. But, so these are some of the additions that the religious leaders have added. And in the context of the Leviticus passage, the neighbor means someone who is a fellow Israelite, someone inside the community of God's people. But they interpreted this word neighbor to mean exclusive, love only your neighbor and hate the enemy, right? And now even during Jesus' time, this was one of the hot topics, like who is my neighbor? And if you remember, one of the experts of the law came to Jesus and said, uh, who is my neighbor? And in response to that question from the expert of the law is when Jesus uh, shares the parable of the Good Samaritan. So he's, he is uh, breaking down their misunderstandings and pushing the boundaries of who is our neighbor through that parable of the Good Samaritan. So for in the context of the Jewish listeners, these enemies were the Samaritans, the non-Jews, the Romans who were occupying the nation of Israel. But the same principle applies to us as Jesus' disciples today. Neighbor does not mean, love your neighbor does not only mean those whom we like, our own family, or people in our inner circle, our gang. This includes our difficult neighbor next door, or your coworker who you try to avoid all the time, or maybe your in-law, or your relative in the family that you don't get along with. But what does it mean when Jesus says, love a person like that, the person that came to your mind? Um, this um, commentator from William Barclay, what he says helps us. It means that no matter what they do to us, no matter how they treat us, or no matter if they insult or injure us or grieve us, we will never allow any bitterness against them to invade our own hearts, but will regard them with that unconquerable benevolence and goodwill, which will seek nothing but their highest good. 
So it's, the focus here is on what's going on in our hearts more than what's happening, what this person did or did not do. So Jesus is interested in our hearts. How do we respond to these people? And in our thoughts, words, and in our action, what's going on in our heart? That's what Jesus is after. A small disclaimer here, this does not mean that we just let everybody take advantage of us. And I don't think that's what Jesus is, you know, saying here. You know, if there is some, somebody uh, does something that's against the law, then they have to deal with the consequences of their own sin. But the focus here is our heart. So one of the ways to love, is, that's what Jesus says, is one of the ways that we can love such people in our lives is to pray for them. So Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. You know, maybe you are dealing with someone like that who's a thorn on your side, the, the person that you just thought about. Have you considered praying for that person? You know, something happens when we begin to pray for these difficult people in our life. It's amazing how God changes our own hearts first. You know, prayer replaces the anger and the bitterness and replaces that with compassion and God's love for, that peop- for those people. Again, William Barclay is helpful here. He says, the surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for those whom we are tempted to hate. Just let that sink in for a moment, right? So when we pray for these people, the bitterness inside of us is being killed and it is filled with God's love. So let's, you know, one application would be for us to take this time this week to pray for that person. Pray that God would reveal His love to their hearts, but also God would give His love in our hearts for that person. You know, as made mentioned last week, um, people who are anxious, um, uh, and He encouraged us uh, beautifully not to be anxious, but He also talked about unbelievers who are anxious all the time because we live in an anxious culture. And the same way, we also live in an angry culture. And it is actually not surprising uh, why these people are angry, because they have not tasted the love of God in their lives, just like you and I have tasted the love of Jesus. So now, moving on, Jesus, uh, let's look at why should we love our enemies. And so Jesus then goes on to give us reason why we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, wait a minute. Is what Jesus is um, saying, is He contradicting Paul in theology that, that we just celebrated last week, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone? Is He saying that in order to become a child of God that we should love our enemies? No, that's not what he's saying. Son of means someone who has a nature of, son of some, someone who has a character of that person. So that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, you know, when we pray for those who persecute us and when we love our enemies, we are displaying the character and nature of God through our lives to those around us. And that's what He wants us to do. That's why we should love others. And D.A. Carson says this, to love them and to pray for them is an important part of being a son of the Heavenly Father. To bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align oneself with the character of God. 
So we are living as the children of God when we do this. We are bringing us ourselves in alignment with who God is when we live this way. I also love how Jesus says, um, for he makes his son. It's that possessive, like God's son. And everything, he is the maker of the universe. Everything belongs to him, right? But he still uh, makes the sun shine and sends the rain. So it's a reminder for us, if every time we look up and we see the sun and the rain, it's a reminder for us of the goodness of God for us, but it's also a reminder for us telling us, be like your heavenly Father. Amen? And um, not only that God does this for all the people, um, you know, around us, but He did this for you and me. Romans 5, 8, and 10 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So God loved us when we were His enemies. You know, we don't usually think about this often, but you and I were once enemies of God. We were by nature, as Paul says, children of wrath. And yet, God loved us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to change our behaviors or our attitude towards Him before He showed His love towards us. He, made, he took the first step. And that's what we should do, and that's how we live like our Father in heaven. So what Jesus is saying here is He's asking His disciples to be in, um, consistent with God's character. He says the citizens of God's kingdom should reflect the character of their king. And Michael Green says this, the great lover has poured His love upon us unworthy rebels. He has purified us and has adopted us into His kingdom and wants us to be His ambassadors in the human kingdoms. And how is it to be done, and how, do, how is our allegiance to be shown? Supremely by love. And love is the mark which above all else should distinguish those who know themselves to have been found by a loving God. Isn't that amazing? So when we love the unlovable, right, and when we pray to those who are mean to us, the person that you thought about earlier, we are living as an ambassador of God's kingdom in this foreign land. We love others because God first loved us. So Jesus then goes on to give another reason why we should love our enemies. This is often overlooked. It's kind of subtle. It's not obvious from the passage, but it takes a little bit of digging to see it. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So in the days of Jesus, the tax collectors were their own kind of little community. They were hated by the Jews, and they were loathed by them. And so they would stick among themselves, and so they would be our own group. So Jesus is saying, if your love is just like the same as the tax collectors who just love their own, what's the difference? And he says, then what reward do you have? And the key word, I think, is reward. You see, sometimes we uh, treat our human relationships as uh, transactions, you know, profit and loss, plus or minus, positive and negative, right? So, 
you know, I do a lot of positives than your negatives. And so we tally each other and like it doesn't measure up. And those, un, um, you know, that's ex those expectations causes frictions in our relationships, right? But we totally forget to put, bring God into that equation. We only think about what we do and this other person do, and we completely miss God and His eternal rewards. You know, when we love and we feel like that love was not returned, it might look like a withdrawal from your account. But Jesus is saying, when you do that, there is a deposit made in your heavenly account on your behalf. And this theme of rewards, you know, it runs throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And especially in chapter 6, you will see this phrase multiple times, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And earlier in chapter 5, one of the Beatitudes talking about those who are persecuted for righteousness, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So when we love our enemies, quote-unquote, and when we love someone and that love is not being returned, we should remember that our heavenly Father sees it. It does not go unnoticed. Maybe even the person that you are trying to show love, the unlovable, the person that you are showing the love to, maybe, maybe they don't even notice your love, and they don't even have any idea how much you love them. But that does not miss the eye of our Heavenly Father. He sees them, and He will reward. And we, as His God's children, we live by faith and not by sight, right? We not only live for the earthly benefits, but we live for our heavenly rewards. So finally, moving on, what is the goal of our love? Why should, what, what, should, what is the ultimate goal of us living like this? How, what is the ultimate goal of us loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? Jesus says, verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is not just the summary of this uh, section, but this is the summary of the entire a section of verses 21 to 48. He's, Jesus is saying, this is the ultimate goal. You have been misinterpreting the Old Testament law. This has been the ultimate goal of the Old Testament law from the first place. You know, the point was to show the perfection of God our Father. And the Israelites completely missed it. And, you know, they thought the Old Testament law was some kind of a scorekeeping thing that they can measure against each other how self-righteous each one was. I am better than you. You are better than me. But if you remember, uh, in, you, know, you would see this phrase every time in the Old Testament, God would ask the uh, people of God to do something. He would say, I am the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself, and he would say, because I am the Lord your God. Forty-nine times this phrase, I am the Lord your God, is mentioned in the book of Leviticus. Basically, what God is saying is, this is who I am, and that's why I'm asking you to do this. And that's why I'm asking you to live like this, is because that's who I am. I am the Lord your God. But they completely missed it. But now Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, this is the same desire that He has for His people in God's kingdom, that we would be a reflection of God's perfection. So when we live and our lives align with the character of God, when our lives are in sync with who He is, we reflect 
our God. We are a reflection of His perfection. And commentator R.T. France says this, the conformity to the character of God to which Israel was called in their role as God's special people is now affirmed by Jesus as the goal of the disciples of Jesus. And it also has the echoes of Genesis, Imago Dei, right? Like when God said, let's make man in our own image and likeness. And so when we live like this, we are displaying the likeness of God to those around us. Now, having said all this, who we should love, not just the people like us, right? Even our enemies, and why we should love them, because God has loved us, and that's His character, and we will be rewarded by God. And what is the goal of our love? To be like Him, like our Heavenly Father? Maybe you are still wondering, like, but I still don't know how I would do this. I've tried so many times, it's so hard. It seems impossible, or I don't seem like have it in me to do this. And I think maybe one key is right in this verse that uh, we might not see it. Let's read one more time. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you see it? Sometimes when we read this fast, we miss that. He's saying He is your Father. So the Father that we are called to Im imitate is He is us. When we become citizens of God's kingdom by believing in Jesus and the sacrifice that He made on the cross, we not only become citizens of the kingdom, but we become His children. That's why Jesus said in John 1.12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. Do we live like the child of our Heavenly Father? Or does our life reflect that we are living like spiritual orphans? You know, in the Old Testament, you know, the Jews saw God as El Shaddai, Adonai, Elohim, and Yahweh God. And even though God was called as a father to the nation of Israel, they never individually lived as God as their father it, because this was made possible only by the sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul says in Galatians 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we have the privilege of having our Father to live as a child of God who can cry out to God as Abba Father. Church, let's be encouraged that we have a loving, caring, grace-abounding, merciful Father in heaven who is for you and not against you, who has unlimited supply of grace for His children, and He's willing and ready to give mercy to those who would come boldly to His throne of grace to receive help. Who want, the one who cares for you deeply, who watches over you, who does not sleep nor slumber, and for whom nothing is impossible, the immortal, the invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful God, the creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth, He is your Father. He is your Father. I feel like we don't 
um, use all that is in that relationship. There is so much to draw from in that relationship of having God as our heavenly Father. And let me give an illustration. You know, the deer hunting season just began this weekend. Andrew just texted me before the service, I'm praying for you from my deer stand or hunting stand or whatever. So if one of you hunting pros come to me and say, hey, Abby, I want you to be perfect hunter like me, I would say you're crazy. It's impossible. There's no way because I've never hunted in my life. I've never even touched a firearm. So there's no hope. But... Some of you probably grew up with a dad who was a great hunter. As a small boy or a small girl, you probably went hunting with him. And you watched him do it. And you spent a lot of time in the hunting grounds learning the tricks and sharing stories or his past experiences. And when you probably failed the first few times, he taught you how to do it and how not to do it. And he kept encouraging you to keep trying. And now you are almost as a good hunter as your dad. You see, if that's how a heavenly father spending time and learning and living in that relationship of a father who knows what he does, does how much more our heavenly father? He is a God of love. And as we saw, that's his nature. That's his character. He loved us when we were his enemies. And he prayed, and the ultimate example of praying for those who persecute you was Jesus on the cross. When he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And so we have him as our Father, so we can learn to love from him. And that's where the strength comes from. And leaning onto that relationship, going deeper into that relationship with God as your heavenly Father. Now, circling back to Joseph's story, I think in the, even though he lived in the Old Testament, I think that's, that was his secret why G Joseph was able to love his brother so well. Because even though his brothers abandoned him, the Bible says that God was with him. God protected him. God was, um, gave favor to him in, in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the, in the jail. And so he was able to experience God as his father throughout his life. And since he was filled by father's love in his heart, he was able to forget what his brothers did because more than the bitterness and anger in his heart from what the brothers did or did not do, his heart was filled with God's love for him. And that enabled him to love his brothers. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and as God in Christ forgave you. Church, we live in an angry world, and the only hope this world have, has is you and me. Because Jesus said few verses ago, few, few verses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Imagine if you and I and all God's people throughout this entire world begin to live like this. What would that do to this world? And that's what this world needs. And they don't have the ability or the source of this strength, this relationship with their father to live like this. 
the only people who can love like God loves is you and me and His children in this world. And so, especially with elections and all these things coming up, maybe you are tempted to tweet something or say something or write something or post something. But pause and let the love of the Father fill your heart more than any bitterness or anger against what people are doing or not doing. Let's, let's be moved by God's love and be an ambassador of His love in this world. Amen? Amen. And I want to uh, finish with this um, uh, story of Corrie ten Boom. And I think most of you know her. Um, she was in the concentration camp uh, during World War II, Nazi concentration camp, and for the sole crime of hiding Jews in, in their home. Somehow, Corey survived, and his, her dad and um, sister passed away in the concentration camp. So she writes this in her best-selling book, The Hiding Place. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Frolin, he said. To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often to the people in Bloemendel the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark, spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives along with the command the love itself. Church, God is the source of our love. His that He displayed most perfectly on the cross of Calvary. And when we don't have it in us to do it, we can go to Him in prayer, and He will surely supply it because that's His will for us. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning. Father God, we thank You for reminding us through Your Word how You want us to live in this world. Father, you chose us for a reason. We are your people, God's people, living in God's kingdom under God's rule to be a reflection of your perfection. 
Father, at the same time, we acknowledge that we don't have it in us. We are weak. We are sinful. And thoughts of bitterness and anger and wrath come more easily to us than the flood of your love. And we pray this morning, would you fill our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that you would fill our hearts through your Holy Spirit with your love and help us to walk in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we can experience His love every day of our lives and we would allow ourselves to be filled with your love for us that there is no room to harbor any bitterness and anger for others in our hearts. And may we be a reflection of you, God, in this world. As you said, help us to be a salt to this earth. Help us to be a light to this world. And help us to not be like those around us, but help us to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.